This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. So Noah Hawley, Anthem is your sixth novel. It is your first after Before the Fall, which was a monster bestseller and also won the Edgar Award for Best Novel in 2017. Anthem is a really interesting follow-up and it's really smart and it's really rich and it's really thought-provoking, but you made some style choices in this novel that I wasn't totally expecting. Can we talk about, without spoilers, because this is the January 2022 Barnes & Noble book club pick, and there yes. will be time to get deep into the conversation in February. First, thank you for choosing the book. I think if all you've read of my work is Before the Fall, yes, this book would be surprising. It breaks the fourth wall. It has a lot of moving pieces to it story-wise, but it is also essayistic in, in ways but if you look at the work I've done in total, you know, not only in the books, but also with Fargo or a show like Legion or Lucy in the Sky, I'm a firm believer that the content of a story should dictate the structure of a story. So in other words, I made a show called Legion in which the lead character was either schizophrenic or he had these abilities and he didn't know what was real and what wasn't real. And so that was the audience's experience. Versus a show like Fargo, which claims to be a true story, and so is presented factually. And what I struggled with here is what is at heart a very heavy story without wanting to write a very heavy book. And I thought, well, who has done that? And I thought about Kurt Vonnegut, and I thought about Slaughterhouse-Five, in which you know he presented both a fictionalized version of his World War II experience, but also had himself as a character in the book. So you knew that it was his real experience, but also the lead character in the book is unstuck in time. So it's a science fiction book. And he also is kidnapped to another planet at a certain point. And he draws cartoons in the book and none of it should work together, but it does. And, and in fact, I would argue that that book is a more powerful moral document than almost any other book, you know, on some level, because it's so honest. And he's in it and he's talking directly to the audience. And so I thought, well, let me see if that solves my problem here, which is I'm worried about this world we have and our children's future. And I know you're worried. So let's talk about it. Not behind some fictional shell, but me as the author going, I'm worried, you're worried. Let's figure it out together. Anthem has a lot to say about us as Americans. It has a lot to say about where we are as a society and as a culture right now. It's set in a near future America. And like I said at the top of the show, we're not going to get deep into spoilers. I read this book in a single sitting the first time, and then I went back and read it again in yeah. preparation for this interview. And there's so much happening in lots of good ways. There are storylines that come together in really excellent ways. There are a couple of kids that I am going to call out by name just because I'm so fond of them, but Simon and Louisa, <laughs> these yeah. kids. I'm not the only person who's going to be attached to these two particular kids. And essentially what you've created is a quest narrative, right? I describe it as a fantasy novel about the real world we live in or a realistic novel about the fantasy world we live in. And so there was a moment in thinking about contemporary America or America five minutes from now, where I thought, well, if this is a, a place in which a large number of people are magical thinkers, then the book should have a kind of magical realism to it. And the story ultimately should be a quest, like Lord of the Rings or 
any sort of fantasy novel because that's what it is. These kids are moving through this mythical landscape on a quest to try to save a young woman from a wizard, from a tower. And, and it is a fantasy novel, but also I'm just describing America that's around us. I'm not really embellishing. This one character says, you know, 30 plus percent of of Americans believe that angels and, and demons walk among us. And, you know, he's asked, well, what do you think? And he says, well, I think the more real they, they seem to people, the realer they become. You know, that idea that a feeling can also be a fact is a very new version of America. And also this idea that there are no experts anymore. Right. You know, and media literacy isn't what it was. And certainly internet literacy is the Wild West in a yes. lot of ways for folks. That seems to be part of what's driving this book. There are multiple mentions of sort of the online world and what we thought the potential was going to be and what we thought we could make it as a society. The thing about tech, though, is it's made by people. Right. I mean, The Atom Bomb was made by people. Not to go back to Kurt Vonnegut, but Cat's Cradle is a book in which he's very much going, well, just because you can make it doesn't mean you should make it. You know, we didn't really think this thing through, but it made so much money that then it became impossible to go back and go, well, let's restructure this in a way that's actually healthy for us. There's a judge character in the book, and she says, everyone has a theory. And we've gone from a people who, yeah, grandma has a wacky thought about put this in your tea and, you know, folklore to, you know, now I won't take a vaccine, but I will take a horse dewormer, you know, because I have a feeling that there's something weird with this vaccine, but I'm okay with pill for a horse. So I said facts and feelings, but, you know, I remember in 2016 seeing Newt Gingrich on CNN in the run up to the election. And he said, you know, crime is up all across America. And the reporter said, no, actually, it's down. That's a fact. And he said, well, people feel like it's up. And that's also a fact. And I thought, what just happened? And that moment for me was the shift where I saw there are people who believe in the facts and there are people who believe in their feelings. And those people are never going to believe in the facts because they trust their instincts more. One of the great things you do in Anthem is you break the fourth wall. And at multiple points in the book, suddenly the narrator pops up and the story is told in the third person. But the narrator pops up and he says things like, I know I owe you an apology. I've created this world. And wow, I'm paraphrasing you. I'm so sorry, but what do I do? My job as the writer is to show you where we live and how we live and what's going on. And I'm really sorry. Yeah. The material I've been handed is what I've been handed. And I am simply recounting a story. So, so much of the last four or five years has been of the, you can't make this stuff up variety. You know, every day it felt like you would get another news item where, you know, something that had never happened before was suddenly the new normal. I just sat down to write a book about people, but I thought, okay, well, when is the story taking place? Is it 10 years ago? Is it today? Is it five minutes from now? And so literally in trying to figure out when the book was set, I had to figure out, well, what would five minutes from now look like? Well, what does today look like? Well, how did we get here? You know, in doing that, I was really just trying to reflect back the world I see around me in the story. And so the story became somewhat absurd and yet... You know, it's not a satire. It's not a comedy. You know, I say in the book, it's like irony without humor is just violence. You look at a Kafka story of a man who's on trial for something they'll never tell him what it is. 
It's like if you look at, you know, we had a president who was elected and, and his inauguration day was raining and he swore that it wasn't raining. And if he showed him a picture of the rain, he would deny that that was a real picture. And like, it would be a joke, except what he's trying to have power over is truth itself. You know, so the joke is on you. If that's the rules for the world, then how do you tell a story that feels realistic? That's all I tried to do. It sounds like you started with the idea then and the characters followed the idea that you wanted to capture this moment that we're living in. Am I right about that? Yeah, I started with a mystery about middle-aged couple, the judge and her husband who show up to visit their adult daughter. And what they find is an empty house with food on the table, half eaten and bags packed, but not taken. And where did her daughter and her boyfriend go? That was the, the way in, you know, with the caveat that the judge had been called that morning by the president to be nominated to the Supreme Court. And then I did. I, I thought, OK, well, so what is the context for this story? And I ended up with a whole other parallel story of the sort of quest novel of these kids who break out of a anxiety abatement center, kind of like rich kids psych hospital to go on this quest. And then those two stories will collide. And through it all, I tried to really examine this idea of anxiety that they feel, that we feel, why are we all so anxious right now? You know, And this, of course, was before the pandemic, but the second half of the book was written during the pandemic, and it only added to the surrealness of life in trying to recreate Earth, where literally, you, know, you have a percentage of our population who went to war with masks, not with a virus. Like, the mask is the problem. The kids are the center of this story. And they're still kids. These are not kids who are wise beyond their years. They're very smart. Yeah. And they're very plugged in. But these are not teenagers who sound like they're 40. They sound like they're teenagers. And, yeah. and that's a really wonderful moment in the book. But the adults are incredibly unreliable. Well, they are. And in many ways, they're unreliable because they're putting themselves first. I made a season of Fargo this last season in which these two crime bosses traded their youngest sons to kind of create a peace between them. And I always said that you could tell who was a moral character and who wasn't by looking at their relationship to a child in that story. And there's a similar thing here. You know, you have the judge who loves her daughter and cares about her daughter, but she goes to Washington for those hearings, even though her daughter hasn't been found. Primarily, the adult characters in the book, you know, have come down on the side of feels like crime is up. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, you know, Simon, the sort of protagonist, when he was 13, he found a book about climate change and all the facts about climate change and how the world was going to end. And he thought, do grownups know about this? Because obviously, if grownups knew about this, they would drop everything and solve the problem. And and then he thinks, I think they do know, and I think they're not doing anything. You know, my son is nine, and he asked me recently, like, why do grownups get to decide everything? And I said, honestly, I don't know. We're not very good at it. I said, you have to listen to me. But in truth, I don't know. And I do. There's part of me that feels right now that every Fortune 500 company should have at least one child on the board of directors, and that nobody over 60 should be allowed to run for office anymore. You know, we got to hand this whole deal off to the next generation, because it's their world. And we're playing out old games, and we need to change that paradigm. So if you at least had a voice in the room that was saying, look at my face, I got these big eyes, I'm 10 years old, like, really, lead in the water, we're going to do that just because somebody's going to get rich. 
you've got the kids leading the way. You've got the adults who are either extremely not helpful or extremely in the way. There's one parent that reveals himself to really possibly not have been a guy to have children, the way he responds to something his child says. And he's like, well, you think you're the first generation to want to change things? You think you're right. the first generation to have anxiety? We had the atomic bomb and we had the Soviet Union. Yeah. And just has no empathy for his kid. And that seems to be something that a lot of your characters wrestle with. And not just in this book, there's a little bit of it too in Before the Fall. Empathy is hard for your characters a lot of the time. It is. And it's not hard for the good ones. No, 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 no. You know, on some (laughs) level. So much of this book is exploring the idea of denial and denialism. And and this character you're talking about is the only honest villain in the book on some level. Because he's like, I don't recycle. I like to eat half a steak and throw it in the trash. You know, this world was put here for our use. And if we destroy it while we're using it, that's our right. And you never hear anyone say that out loud, right? But clearly that's what people think. And maybe they think God gave us this world. And so if we want to kill all the animals off, then we can kill all the animals off because he gave it to us. Versus lying and pretending that climate change isn't real or we're not doing these things. It's somewhat refreshing to have someone say, no, I'm going to burn it all down and then I'm going to die. And great. Sorry about that. But I had a good time. There is a large cast of characters. You've got this core group of kids who are just, they're delightful. (laughs) They're really great. You've got the parents who are in the way and the other assorted adults who are in the way. You've got two storylines that come together in a really satisfying reading experience. So how are you as the writer keeping all of this straight? How do you know where your beats are? I mean, you've had quite a lot of success with screenwriting and some of that does show, I mean, the pacing in this novel is spectacular. We are always moving forward in the story. And your characters though, have the wonderful internal lives that characters in a novel need to have, which you can't do on the screen. You've got to hand that over to someone else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this book, unlike Before the Fall, was really about being open to what the book could be. Not even what it wanted to be, but what it could be. And there are elements to it that were revelations to me. There is both an author who is me and a kind of narrator who is not me. You know what I mean? Who talks about our children, et cetera. And then there's the third person story. You know, and there was a moment in which I realized that we're in the kingdom of magical thinking, then there should be magical realism in the book, you know, on on some level, because like in A Hundred Years of Solitude, which is basically a book filled with tragedy, but there's so much beauty to it and the the romanticization of, of the magic of it, that it creates a tension between something beautiful and something awful that I thought this book should have. And then it it is, it's also very essayistic in a way. And and I needed to figure out a way to talk about political realities without being political, if I could. You know, the word Democrat and Republican is never mentioned in the book. Instead, I tried to figure out how these characters look at the political parties. You know, there's all these sort of metaphors about cooks and drinkers or surfers and swimmers and metaphorical ways to look at what one side wants and what the other side wants. There's a moment in which, you know, I say, I'm not going to use those words, Democrat and Republican. Instead, I'm going to say we have two parties, the party of truth and the party of lies, except what you need to know is that both parties think they're the party of truth. So right now, the party of truth is in power. But before that, the party of truth was in power, except it was the other party. 
party. So that's how complex it is for us. I mean, everyone thinks that they're a good person and the hero of their own story. And so when we look at it, we're doing them a disservice when we make them a villain. That's always the hardest part with villains is that they're so obviously villain us, right? You know, like, but no, this guy thinks he's right. He thinks he's right. The judge thinks she's right. There are a lot of folks who do think they're right in this case. But also when you use phrases like the party of truth is in power now and the, before that the party of truth is in power, satire really is dead, isn't it? You can't really make this stuff up anymore. Well, it's dead because satire was humor that produced shame and shame that produced change. And there is no shame anymore. You know, I talk in the book about we live in the age of inverted reality, where shame has become pride, where these creatures that we call trolls are out there farming for liberal tears by saying the worst things in the world. There was that moment recently where the Republican congressman put up the video of beheading a Democratic congresswoman. And she said, I'm tired of people like him doing these things and then saying they don't mean anything. As if all of that violence and threat of violence is just haha, LOL. It's hard to figure a way out of it, but you certainly can't mock them. I'll watch Seth Meyers sometimes, and I think it's funny, but I'm also very aware that if you're really trying to heal a wound, making fun of people ain't going to do it. And so we have to figure out how to use humor, you know, not at the expense of people because humor brings people together. You have an explanation of utopia in this yeah. book that you borrowed from Thomas More. And I want to bring it up because utopia is sort of what everyone's looking for. And there are different yeah. definitions of utopia. The guy who wants to throw away half a steak after eating it, that's right. actually his utopia. The judge really does want what the next thing that's coming down the pike for her is. And these kids, they would like the world to not be on fire anymore. They would like the adults to actually listen to them. They would like the adults to take them seriously and help right. them live. Everyone's looking for utopia. And I didn't actually know this until I read it in your book. But the technical definition is two things that can't really exist at the same time. It's basically a place that isn't real. And one of the fascinating things in, in thinking about utopia is when you look at the utopian movements, you know, throughout history, it's always a group of people who think things are really bad here, but rather than fix them, I'm going to go somewhere else where none of those things exist. And then when they get there and they realize, oh, all those problems are still here, some of them will break off, not fix those problems, and then go somewhere else. Like people who don't want to do the hard work, they want all the reward with none of the hard work, you know, are going off to find the place. And, and I think... You know, what's meaningful with these kids who are on this quest to do a thing that they hope will lead them to utopia is that they don't have a lot of faith that this isn't going to happen. I think that it's their best, worst option. <laughs> you know what I mean? But there is that sense of what is the promised land for people? There have been a lot of really smart people in the history of the earth. Somehow we still haven't managed to crack it. Is that part of what you're talking about, though, when you're saying you wanted to be open to the possibilities of what this book could be? Like the kids not knowing whether or not they're going to make it, the adults being who they are, the fact that there are really fun, fantastical elements that you use to talk about stuff that's really rough in some yeah. ways. Yeah, I think that it, it is about a journey in, in the best sense of the word, which is they're off the map. 
the map that used to say, well, between Chicago and St. Louis, you have these towns, but they find themselves in, in a field that people are living in, in which these Doctors Without Borders, people are coming in to set up tents to help these people with their medical and dental problems who used to do that in third world countries, but now America has become a place in which healthcare isn't really available. And so you used to have these huge lines for people to get in to have a tooth pulled, but now the people just live in the line. And what are the rules for a community like that or a society like that? It's really fascinating you know, to travel around this country and, you know, and see the kind of self-definition of places. And, you know, more and more, we're defining ourselves against things instead of for things. And, and the language doesn't mean the same thing. What you say when you mean freedom and what somebody else says when they mean freedom, it's, it's sort of two different words often. And, and so how do you talk to that person when they say, my personal freedom says I don't have to wear a mask? And you go, but I can wear my mask, right? Because that's my freedom. And they're like, no, you shouldn't wear your mask either. And like, well, you see the irony there, but they don't. They don't see the irony. And again, as you've said before, irony without humor is violence. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so that was a big part of what the book became while still moving a powerful narrative through was, well, what is that? You know, what is the instinct that creates someone who can see the world in a way that doesn't make sense to somebody else? And how do we get through that process of, you know, either cleaving together or cleaving apart? As I mentioned earlier, there are these fantastical elements to the story. There are some very funny moments. There are also some very intense moments. There is some violence. It is a propulsive reading experience. I mean, I really did not want to put Anthem down the first time I read it. I may have sacrificed a little bit of sleep and it was totally worth it. Totally, yeah. totally worth it. But what's it like for you as the writer who's immersed? I imagine that there were points where you had to step back and say, hey, wait a minute, I need a nap. I need a snack. <laughs> I, need, I need a minute away from sleep. You know, it's interesting because I read for the audio book, I read the, let's call them authorial sections. And, you know, I had to decide, do am I reading this narrator or not reading this narrator? And I ended up reading them. And you know, some of the sort of factual pieces or, or the analysis pieces about how the world is, and they are tough. We haven't been very good to each other on this planet, maybe ever, but certainly recently. So some of that was tough to go through. And, you know, a writer creates fictional characters that are real to them. And then sad things happen to them. And, you know, tragic things happen and violence happens. And on some level, the worst part is when those characters are children or teenagers and they don't understand. You know, because there's an expectation, especially among children, about fairness. And when the world isn't fair, when people are actively cruel or manipulative or exploitative, you know, there's such violence to that. When the world isn't the way you thought it was, there's traumatic violence to do it psychologically. And, and yet, you know, those kids have to see the world in order to fix it. Those brutal moments are on some level critical to their going, all right, well, I'm not naive anymore. There's a moment in the book, this kid who calls himself Randall Flagg, who survived the Parkland shooting, he takes the NRA statement and he says, you know, the only way to stop a bad man as a gun is a kid with a gun. It's such an awful thought. Adults, they didn't solve the problem for him. When we know what, what the moral thing is, and we can't do it, either because we convince ourselves the moral thing is something else, or just because the rules are too hard, or we don't have the willpower for it, it's hard to know. 
We also seem to be in a moment as a society where we're undermining and redefining sort of as it suits us what truth is and what morality is. And it's like, well, that answer doesn't work for me. So I'm just going to tell you this other thing. And it's that constant spin. Yeah. And it's really cynical. It's wildly cynical. Yeah. And I would say that it's predictable, but it's on some level, it really isn't. It's shocking every time. When you see in the moment on January 6th, you see the kind of universal condemnation of it. And then to watch what's happened in the last year and you think, can they really believe that? I mean, so much footage, there's so, but there's a choice. People are making a choice. And you see this when people leave cults, you know, or these moments where the prophet has said, the world's going to end Tuesday night at eight. And then Tuesday night at eight, eight 15, everyone's like, okay, we were convinced it was going to end. So either this guy's full of shit or no, he just got the date wrong. What is that in the human mind that we can't handle the idea that maybe we were wrong, so fundamentally wrong about something and just go, oh, yeah, that was dumb. I I'm out of this. Our brains just work so hard to maintain the illusion that we believe in. Kids are less likely to do that, though. At least your kids, the kids in this book, they have a little more understanding yeah. of what's happening. Well... I mean, on some level, it's the natural evolution of childhood, right? Which is you think your parents are gods <laughs> and you go from that to you think your parents are boring and square and hypocritical. And that's part of achieving independence is that process. But certainly for Simon, whose sister killed herself, you know, when he was 14 and whose parents then removed everything that reminded them of her from the house and never spoke of her. You know, how do you as a kid, how do you live with that or rationalize? It's such a crazy thing to do. And you're grieving so much and your parents are supposed to be there to help you. And instead they're like, no, the best thing you can do is just shove it way down or pretend it never happened. That's not good advice for how to live. So certainly you have to go either they're right or they're wrong. And if they're wrong, what else are they wrong about? I want to switch gears slightly for a second, because you've talked about Kurt Vonnegut's influence on Anthem. You've mentioned Kafka. There are also references to A Clockwork Orange, which I'm going to assume in this case, given the physical descriptions that went with it, it's the Kubrick film rather yes. than the Burgess novel. Yeah. The Lord of the Rings obviously has a place in this Fight Club by Chuck Palahniuk. Stephen King's work, even um, Edward Gorey's Gashley Tiny show up, and the Boy Scout Handbook. Yeah. I think I caught all of them. Oh, wait, there was a reference to Mad Max, too. So there is. Yes. Did I miss anything? You know, I, I'm a literary omnivore, I guess. Okay. Um, the idea, of course, at the heart of that is, you know, this line between fact and fiction is broken down. And, and you saw it on January 6th with the cosplay, right? It wasn't just that, you know, so-called patriots showed up to express their displeasure with the government. They showed up in like fur and horns. And, you know, there's a costumage to it as if first choose your avatar. And then, you know, so much of the language of it, the troll felt like it came out of Fight Club. Do you know what I mean? And all those references. And then you think, well, where are people, especially young people, what's teaching them to be heroic or moral or, you know, because we're not out in the world the same way we used to be. My nine-year-old son has watched more movies at nine than I had when I was 30, because they weren't available to me in that, in that same way. And so there's so much that's absorbed and the kind of, you know, iconography of 
the war boys and Mad Max and, you know, the Tyler Durden's and all of it, Joker, you know, all that stuff is so powerful and appeals so directly to some part of the amygdala of young men who are driving the violence of this thing. And it seems cool and they want to be cool. You know what I mean? And, and so there is that moment where Simon asks the kid who calls himself Randall Flagg, he's like, isn't that a fictional character from the Stephen King book. And he's like, it's a fictional world. Why can't I be a fictional person? And in some level, pretending to be that fictional person gives him such strength in the real crisis moments where, you know, he's like, he's the walking dude. He's the man in black, like, you know, and, and he lives up to the title, you know, in, in a way that that does. It blurs fact and fiction. Are those all of the creative influences on Anthem? Or are there others that you didn't really reference in the book? Well, there are others. I mean, I mentioned Marquez. There was a lot of research that went into that book in a nonfiction sense. When I was in the middle of the book, you know, we took a family trip and I went to the bookstore and I tried to buy all the books that I'd read as a young man who never went and got an MFA, who taught himself to write. Like, what are the books where I thought, oh, you can do that in fiction? I bought The Unbearable Lightness of Being, you know, Milan Kundera with his sort of essayistic Fiction who turned ideas into story, definitely. Song of Solomon, I bought again. Even if I owned it, I just got new versions. White Noise, The Virgin Suicides. I'm sure there were, there were others that were revelations to me in the craft of writing that I wanted to revisit because it, it is my sixth book. And at a certain point, the engine gets going. And, and I thought, no, I want to go back to the beginning and go, well, what inspired me when I was becoming a, a novelist? And so that was a really fascinating exercise. With Marquez through Morrison and DeLillo and Eugenides, voice is a huge yeah. piece of those books. They're slightly less plot driven than you. Yes, they are. In my youth, I aspired to the literary novelist, and I still think of myself that way. It's just when I published my first book, which was A Conspiracy of Tall Men, in which I was sort of trying to figure out, well, we have this cycle of paranoia in America. What are we so afraid of? And I thought, okay, well, what's a story to help me explore that? And I thought, okay, well, if it's a professor of conspiracy theories and his wife is killed in a plane crash and he realizes that she was leaving him, she was having an affair... And so he finally gets the conspiracy he wants. And I thought, well, if she's just having an affair, it's kind of not a book. There should be an actual conspiracy. And then I realized the plot is hard. I'm not saying anyone can write literary fiction that's beautiful, that doesn't necessarily go anywhere, but certainly to try to maintain that level of writing and character work and poetry and tell a compelling story that feels harder to me, you know, and so that became motivational to me. And the book always has to start with a story that goes somewhere. And you started your career as a novelist, but you, as we mentioned earlier, have had quite a lot of success with television, notably Fargo and Legion. And you're working on a new project for aliens. They're yes. Pretty- okay. So that's a little bit off in the future. That's a wide range of projects. Yeah with a wide range of subjects, but how does your screenwriting influence your novel writing and your novel writing influence your screenwriting? They're two very separate disciplines. They are, and screenwriting is all about economy. How do I convey this in the least amount of space on some level? And I could do it in dialogue, but can I do it with an image? 
because of course it's a cinematic medium and it's almost more powerful as an image than it is as a line. You know, there's no room in a great screenplay for fat. I suppose on some level that carries over into the work along with a certain visual feeling. I think that what I get from fiction though is that it, it is primarily driven by the internal state of characters. And you hear writers say so often that they were surprised by what the characters did in the book because the feelings led to the actions. And once you start writing them, you may end up at a very different place than you thought. And, and a screenplay doesn't have that. It just has dialogue and action in it. But that doesn't mean you don't have to do that work. The other side is, well, how can you reflect that interior life cinematically? And, and you know, on some level, that's what Lucy in the Sky was, the movie that I made about this woman's sort of mental decline. It's like, how do I show you her mental decline, which in a novel I could clearly describe for you, but I can't. And she's not going to say it out loud. So how do I, I show the psychology, you know, as cinema? They're very different mediums. And I, I love that about them. What are you hoping that readers are going to take away from Anthem? At its base, I hope that they might feel less alone. It's like, yes, I'm worried about all this stuff too. I'm right there with you. And hopefully in trying to figure it out for myself, maybe you come away from it understanding your world a little better, or at least how I see it, which as long as, long as someone feels like, They've drilled down on these things, but also I sort of struggle at the end of the book with the idea of empathy, because I've always, as a storyteller, and especially telling stories like Fargo that involve violence, you know, I, I never want the violence to be entertainment. And, and so to get there, you have to feel empathy for both sides of that. So I've always thought of a story as an empathy delivery device. But recently I have been thinking, well, but the problem with empathy is it doesn't scale. I can feel empathy for you and maybe three other people. And, but after a certain number of people, the human brain just can't apply that feeling anymore. So if we're looking at empathy to save us, it's, it's not going to be enough. So what does it take? The compassion that it takes to look at a really large problem and solve it. Because at a certain point, we just get numb to suffering when it gets too big. I'm looking just to help people think about those questions. I don't have the answers. So much of our daily lives are just caught up in make the lunch, get the kids to school, get to work, get home, dinner, you know. And then if you're reading something that is clearly entertaining, like you said, can't put it down. So if you've entertained people, they give you permission to do more with character or theme or so that's part of it for me. And, you know, the other element of screenwriting is the definition of action. It's clear in movies what action is, but I think, you know, action is whatever propels the story forward. So dialogue can be action. And, you know, with this book, I started to explore the idea of like, well, can ideas be action? You're talking about reading sections of the book in which literally there is action leading to a section of the book, which is an exploration of the history of denial and denialism, but you didn't slow down there. Can I create action out of ideas as well? So that I just sort of describe it as, as the roller coaster, right? Where these stories, they'll take us on this emotional roller coaster, but what do we know about an emotional roller coaster or any roller coaster is that it's on rails. It's the same ride every time. But how do we take the roller coaster off the rails, right? Where it's not, I can't believe the characters just did that. It's, I can't believe the book just did that. Or the ideas, intellectual roller coaster. And so that's part of it for me is I know how many books you read and how many shows you watch and movies you watch. And 
you know, yeah, on some level, a lot of them are very repetitive. And, you know, I always want to try to tell a story that's unexpected, that feels inevitable in the end. Which is why we chose Anthem for the January 2022 Barnes & Noble Book Club. The discussion, though, where we will get into the spoilers and we will get into all of these characters and these storylines that we have danced around today while we were talking about craft and process and the bigger ideas driving this book. There is so much to talk about in Anthem, but we're not doing it on this show because the book club event is February 8th. Look for details on barnesandnoble.com. Noah Hawley, thank you so much. Anthem is a remarkable book, and we're so delighted that you were able to join us today. Thank you. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.